still recovering from the embarrassment of requesting to start early because I, I lecture at 2 o'clock, so that's why I was hoping to get started. And then I get here only to discover that uh, I forgot my presentation. So, <laughs> um, it's, uh, it, this is the first time I, either of us have presented this, so um, we look forward to, to feedback. And thank you for showing up a few minutes early. I really appreciate it. Uh, so, uh, and as Dorn mentioned, this is a former colleague of mine. I, I spent six years at the University of Kentucky before moving here in 2012. It seems ages ago. Um, and Tom has uh, did his graduate work in, uh, in Duke University in North Carolina, so that's why we look at North Carolina in part. A, a lot of things are data driven, I have to admit. So, okay, well, part of the interest in this study. Um, to give you a, a you know a one minute personal anecdote, I used to live in California, and you could see there there's a huge population of people that don't speak English, and you can see that in schools as well as just in everyday life, and so it's something that um, that you sort of just accepted. Oh yeah, it's California. You know, half the people aren't from here. Uh, slight exaggeration, but you really can see it not just in the U.S. but I think globally that, that there's been increased. Well, the migrations decreased probably a little bit as a result of the global economic situation, but uh, five, ten years ago there was a lot of migration, international migration, and one of the byproducts of that are that schools would often have students whose native language was not the language, and that's why I refer to this as language of instruction, because there's some work done in the Netherlands looking at kids who don't speak Dutch, that sort of thing. So in the U.S. or Ireland, the example would be at least for most Irish schools, would be that English is the language of instruction. So the idea is you have a lot more kids in the classroom now than 10, 15, 20 years ago who aren't uh, proficient in English, okay, that they struggle. And so the schools try to sort of have to do double duty for these students. They're first trying to get them, you know, teach them just like any other student, but they're also trying to get them up to speed in English. And so that creates you can imagine a bit of a burden for these schools. In fact, in I don't know the case as well in Ireland, but in the U.S., uh, schools receive additional resources to try and help uh, with these sort of students. And an interesting pattern in the U.S. that one sees, and I'll have a couple of figures that might try and highlight this, is traditionally in the U.S. you would see a lot of people going sort of to coastal areas, places like New York and big cities, New York, Chicago, uh, I mentioned California, Florida, Texas, were areas where they attracted a lot of immigrants for a long time. Now, obviously, uh, I should probably, in deference to Morgan, who does a lot more historical work, obviously there are immigrants all over the U.S. from, you know, 200 years ago or whatever. But of in the last 50 years, that's where most of the migration has been occurring. But what we've seen in the last 20 to 30 years are a lot of places that since they were settled uh, back in, you know, say the 1800s, haven't really had very many immigrants since then. And uh, many policymakers and people there seem to have forgotten that they themselves are immigrants in some of these locations. Um, but what you're definitely seeing is many parts of, say, the south and the middle of the country now have a lot, a huge, in, well, huge might be relative, uh, but a noticeable increase in immigration in these places. And our study is one of these places, and I think therefore is very relevant in U.S. policy, and I think even internationally, because we're looking at these areas that haven't been traditional immigrant destinations, but are have become so in the last you know generation. 
so uh, to try and illustrate, here is North Carolina. And I apologize if I fidget a little. I, I'm used to lecturing, and I have to wander around to try and keep people's attention. I, I suspect you guys will be a little bit to uh, pay a little bit more attention than my, my students, I would guess. So uh, I'll apologize for that. But there's North Carolina circled. Um, I'm by no means an expert on North Carolina, even in this room, um, as uh, Dorn and others have. I know there's a strong affiliation with people at RTI and elsewhere in um, North Carolina. So I may have to defer. Um, but one thing to note is North Carolina does not have, as I mentioned before, California, Texas, you can't see it because that's a statewide for Illinois, but the Chicago area and New York, Florida are all areas that have pretty large concentrations of students who don't speak, uh, who aren't, well, actually it's not that they don't speak English, they're not proficient in it is the way we describe it, and that's the way typically in the U.S. we measure that. Okay, and you can see it's between 5 and 10 percent uh, overall in North Carolina, although most of these kids uh, are in uh, primary schools. By the time you get to secondary schools, although we have middle schools here in, in our data, which are kind of a, you can think of them as uh, sort of, they're grades six through eight in the, U, in the U.S. system, so that'd be, you know, sixth class and the first two classes of the secondary school, typically is, is a middle school. And so you can see here, one, it's not a huge one, but all of these areas here, uh, it's more illustrated here, is the, there's a lot of growth in these areas in the middle in, in students who don't speak English, okay? And in fact, in North Carolina, it's increased by something like, you, know, you can't tell it here, so I think it's like 150% or something like that. In these states like Indiana, my former home of Kentucky, where it went from, you know, 0% to 1%, uh, Virginia and those others have had, it's more than doubled uh, in the, between 2000 and 2010, okay? So that's why I think this is an interesting case for North Carolina because it, it's not a huge share of the population, but it's fast growing, although tapering of late. Is it mostly the triangles or? Um, not entirely. Um, like for example, in a lot of, like in Kentucky for example, which I know a little better, uh, it's actually, there's a lot of agricultural workers too that come in. Um, usually from Central America, or Mexico or Central America. So I don't know off the top of my head if it's just the urban areas, but I think it's, uh, I think it's throughout the state, although I'm not entirely sure. So. Okay, so again, to try and illustrate this from North Carolina, uh, this is from, now that you can see it here, from uh, it's called a, a group called NCELA, Anyway, part of the U.S. Department of Education. I was very excited that the uh, shutdown ended because for, for when I was trying to gather these statistics, I would just get this thing and say, you know, not available due to the shutdown, basically. So, um, but again, it's not that North Carolina schools are having this huge influx of students. I mean, there is a blip up. I wonder if this is sort of data issue. It did increase a bit here in around 2005 or so, um, whereas the students who Sometimes they're called LEP, sometimes they're called EL for English learner. Uh, the, these two terms are used interchangeably. But the idea here, as you can see, is that it's taken off, right? I mean, admittedly, it's a very low base, right? You can see here in 1998, there were 28,000 students who weren't proficient in English. And these are numbers for entire uh, K-12, by the way, uh, elementary and secondary uh, and middle. Uh, whereas now it's uh, over 100,000 students. 
in, sorry, 2007, 2008. It has declined a little bit since then. This was kind of the peak, um, but it's still, uh, it's nowhere near tapered off to, to these sorts of levels. So, and again, if we're focusing on 2000, see it's not quite doubled between 2000 and 2010. Okay, so the research question that we're interested in is if you're a student and you have uh, students around you who don't speak English very well, is this, does this have, uh, typically we would assume they're negative spillovers. Um, you could try, there could potentially be an argument um, for, I guess, potentially positive spillovers. But that's sort of the idea is it, if the teacher has to spend a lot of time because these students don't really speak English, uh, is that, um, does that adversely affect your achievement? And these are using what are described as end of grade tests in reading and mathematics. So that's going to be sort of our outcome. That's the, that's the research question that we're interested in, is not counting you yourself, but if what sort of the, your peers, as we call them, um, if you see an increase in peers not being proficient in English, does that have a negative impact on your test scores to the extent we can hold everything else equal is the idea here. Yes, well, we have student fixed effects. So if it's time invariant, then it will be held equal. Yes, we do have controls for ethnicity, uh, free lunch, which is a proxy for low income, uh, and also for test scores of your peers to try and isolate. We're trying to isolate the effect, the language effect from, yes, because this is a point that I'll make later on, um, that uh, at least in North Carolina, a lot of these immigrants are from Mexico and Central America and are very low, low income as well. So we try to isolate the effect of having low income kids or low achieving peers from just the language effect itself. And this is something, again, I'll stress in a couple minutes, that the other literature doesn't do a lot of. We, we would argue that we have more extensive controls for other peer factors that we think would matter. Oh, and yeah, so if I run out of time, although at the rate I'm talking, that shouldn't be a problem, uh, we do find modest negative effects give you a preview if you're in a food coma or something here in, in an hour. Uh, that's, that's what we find. And I, as I said, I'd argue they're fairly modest in size, but that's something we can also discuss. Okay, so just to give you a preview of the, of, of the goal here is we measure, and again, some, I'll, I'll be repeating myself a lot, uh, the, the idea of peer, we have a couple different definitions of peers as being either the people in the classroom or just at your grade level generally. And the idea is the classroom, if people, there's a lot of tracking in the US where people are assigned to specific classrooms, sometimes based on ability. And that could exacerbate the, this question about language if your peers are not randomly chosen. Right? You might be worried that you're being assigned, that you may see a negative effect because all the low achieving kids get are stuck in the classroom with all the immigrant, with all the non-native speakers, and you know you, it's a negative effect because of sorting, not because of the fact that you have these these non-English speaking classmates. And so that's why, in some cases, we use grade to try and sort of alleviate that problem because it's a bit more challenging to non-randomly sort people across grades. Uh, again, we, in our preferred model the student fixed effects model, we have repeated, these are very extensive data for the entire state of North Carolina. Um, and we have students in sixth grade, seventh grade, and eighth grade. And so the idea is that we can have then three observations per student and include student fixed effects. Okay, and the hope is that what you're getting 
is that if you suddenly, if your classroom in seventh grade happened to have a couple more non-English speakers in it, what's the effect on achievement? The assumption being that most everything else, that that's just kind of an idiosyncratic change, that just population driven by just changes in student populations in the state, as opposed to necessarily anything in particular about you or the school that you're attending. Uh, we also have school well, fixed effects that, as well. Uh, it's certainly possible, and that's why we focused just on middle schools to try and, because that's why we didn't include, because there are data from grades, I think students are tested in grades three through eight in North Carolina. So one possibility would be to look at all those grades, and then you'd have a much bigger panel, but we were worried that we might confound changes that way. So we're trying to just look at middle school. Um, No, no, right, if you're in a, right, again, sort of, right, the thing being, right, because these are the middle school, the elementary schools in the U.S., and I think to, to somewhat a similar degree here in Ireland, right, are very neighborhood-based. And so the idea being you might be in a neighborhood that doesn't have a lot of immigrants or a lot of non-English speakers, but the catchment area for the middle school is going to cover a lot more. Like, uh, for example, on average, there are 200 students in each grade in middle school. So, you know, whereas an elementary school will be more likely to have 60 or 80. So um, that you could also potentially have that effect. Um, the hope would be that we wouldn't be capturing those in these data. Um, I'm just trying to think. I don't know that we have... I can't remember if we have dummy variables in there for grade or not. We should, I think, because that could capture the problem. If something happens, you just transfer school, you're sixth grade, you're new to the school, that could probably capture that. So I, I'll double check that. Um, almost all the schools in the sample are grades six to eight, so they've already done that transition. Yes? Ah, so the idea, the, the variable of interest here is this percent of students, not counting you, uh, percent of your classmates slash grademates who are not proficient in English by the test score they take. And then the, the dependent variable is your own test score on individual level test score on the end of grade test in either 6th, 7th, or 8th grade. Well, would that include the grades the The dependent variable would not. The independent variable could, and that gets to Paul's question about do I have other controls for theirs. So the idea is we have separate controls for what the average test score of your classmates or grade mates were, peers as we call them to make life simpler and then I never use it. So um, is the idea is try to capture that. So it's supposed to be capturing individual level data, even though this variable is indeed not individual level. Although it does vary within a classroom, obviously, because you're pulled out <laughs> of it. Ah, yes, right. We're differentiating from the fact that you could have a student who either is learning disabled or just really stupid. Um, they're not going to be in this. This is these are people who who speak a language other than English at home and who are not showing some level of proficiency on so a the, test. The, the people you're looking at on the left hand side. Ah, that's are, it, they, are they the ones who like the? That's everybody. It's, it's got everybody in there for now. Um, we, we haven't done the breakdown yet. We, we plan to in the future to see if, if there's a differential, different, differential effect. But yes, we have everybody. The sample includes everybody. So if that, so. You expect that effect to be quite different. 
yes, although as you'll see, if we have an average of 5% of students, then the effect we're gonna find is probably the effect for the non, right, if you're, if there are only 5% of the sample that's, that's left in this data, then odds are the, the overall effect that we're finding is basically the effect of for native speakers. But yes, that's a good point that you might expect that if, you might expect there to be different effects for those two groups, which is why at some point, we want to separate them out to, to so see that. Policy terms that driven by this kind of most effective way to do with kids. Like, are they bad multiple? Yes. The only kid in the class, or if it was lots of other kids yes. who were getting, the uh, I agree. And in fact, that's how, that's the original project that I had proposed to Tom. And we were having a hard time. That study should be done. We couldn't think of we weren't comfortable with the identification strategy that we had for doing that analysis, but I certainly agree. And I've done some work in California looking at whether or not you speak, whether you do a bilingual where you do Spanish and English interchangeably or English only. And there didn't seem to be much difference in California. I, I was thinking that you did it separately. Mm -hmm. Uh, as opposed to a, yes. That's, a, that's an interesting point. I hadn't thought of that. Thank you. Okay, so as I said, what I want to argue is what, what, what do we bring to this analysis? The first is that the data I've seen to date have not used panel data methods, basically. Um, there have been a couple where they'll have two points, and so what they typically do is, a, uh, is they just study fifth graders, and they know that their score in third grade what it was and they include it as a control variable or their dependent variables growth, that sort of thing. I haven't seen one that just uses panel, that uses panel data as panel data. Um, there's one exception, there's one paper that does a student fixed effects model looking at the difference between first grade and, wait, no, kindergarten and first grade. Um, but that's, you know, and that's why I argue it's more detailed because that's just one uh, year whereas we're looking at, we have, I guess two changes. We have double the amount of changes that they do, um, that they can look at. Um, a lot of the data, particularly outside the US, just focuses on immigration. Um, like again, there's a paper in the UK that's I think very well done, but um, one, they again, they don't have cross-section, they just have people at the, in the UK, it's the, uh, well again, there are gonna be people that know way more than I do, um, that look at sort of the end of primary school tests uh, controlling for earlier tests, but that what they focus on is not whether or not these people are proficient in English or not, but just rather or not whether they're immigrants. And does having a lot of immigrants in your school matter? And what I'm more interested in, or what Tom and I are more interested in, is this idea that it's not necessarily immigrant that matter, and in fact, Tom would be a good example because he's technically an immigrant, but he's an, an embassy kid who, uh, you know, his, his parents are fluent in English and he's fluent in English. Um, so he might be an immigrant, but you know, would you really be concerned about having him as a classmate? Um, I could make a joke about Tom and say you might be, but he's a really good guy, so I would, it would be a joke and I have to clarify that. So I would want, I mean, I, I miss having him as a colleague, in fact, so. Um, so that's why we think it's really interesting that it's this, that is there the problem, this language in particular? Because I'm not sure that once people become proficient, are they as much of a drag, sort of thing the thing that we're interested in, so that's why we focus on that. Especially because also some of these immigration papers in particular tend to focus on immigration from uh, non-European countries. So they tend, not, they tend to look at things that occur outside the EU. Like in the Netherlands, they're looking at people coming from 
uh, outside of Europe. The fact that maybe you move from France to the Netherlands and you still, your kid's not proficient in English. So they're kind of combining a, a language and a socioeconomic effect together. And we're trying to isolate to the extent we can the language effect. So, and just getting back to Paul's point here, we've also talked a bit about this, that we're really trying to control, we're trying to isolate language from other peer characteristics as well. We're really, to the best we can, we're trying to study language. Okay, and that's why, and we think that's, that's important. And last, as I said, a lot of the stuff in the U.S. has been based on these populations that have a long established immigrant population like California, Texas, or a couple of the, where some of the studies have come from. And we think it might be interesting, well, we think it is interesting, obviously, since we're doing it. We're hoping that others will find it interesting as well to look at a state where there's been a rapid growth from a very low base that you might think that there, there might be that the effects could potentially be different for a state that's not used to having to deal with this problem and now they have to. As opposed to California and Texas, they've been dealing with this challenge of having uh, kids from Mexico coming in for 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 years. In fact, they were Mexico at one point, uh, some of these. Yep. That's a good point. We uh, we had taught we haven't yet got a control in there for mobility, but yes, uh, that's another thing I would like to control for. Um, and I th I just don't the data aren't as great on that. But I agree that one argument could be that it's churning. The hope would be maybe that some of our controls um, for other peer characteristics like test scores and low income, because low income kids are more likely to churn in schools anyway. So hopefully we could capture some of that. But you're right that it's still possible that without a direct control for mobility, that could be an issue. We do control for the students' mobility. Um, but yes, controlling for the influx of students is, I agree, we should have that control in there. I don't think we do at the moment. Then you're arguing, yeah, that signal to noise type problem or? People in this country would think it's the other way around, but um, <laughs> yes, I see. Yeah, you, you, there, there's a uh, there, okay. I see your point. Um, yes, okay. That I had not considered that potential, but yes, I see where you're coming from. Uh, the results are yeah. I'll think about that. Uh, I don't know that I have results here that do that. We did try models where we vary the amount of controls in there to try and address that issue, but I don't know how good a job we do at that. So, okay, so I've talked a bit about the data already. Um, again, the idea of middle schools in the U.S. are these are typically grades six through eight. Uh, we have all, we have the population of schools. We do throw out a couple of schools that appear to be schools very, very small schools that appear to be for students solely with disabilities. Maybe that solely is not in the right spot. But in other words, basically schools for uh, disadvantaged, and I don't mean that social, uh, students with learning disabilities. Um, there are a few very small schools where everybody has an IEP, an individualized education plan, that sort of thing. So we do throw out a couple of schools that don't appear to be like normal schools. Um, I don't know that the results would be very sensitive to that. Um, so we do have the population for the state. Um, 
we start with sixth graders in 2006 and then finish with eighth graders in 2011. So I think that's, if I do the math correctly, that's either four or five cohorts of students. Now, we don't literally follow them because obviously if they leave the state or whatever, we can't do that. But the goal is for most students that we would have three observations from grade six, grade seven, and grade eight. And per year, we have about 600,000 students per, per year, per grade. So these are the entire population? Yeah, yes. If we assume the population are all students at all times, you know. I don't talk a lot about standard errors, but I do talk a bit about significance because, you know, a noisy estimate, eh, point taken. <laughs> Thanks the easy way. We do know what classroom, we, we started in 2006 because starting in 2006, we do know what classroom the students are in for these subjects and thus we know things about their teachers. Uh, the results don't appear to be particularly sensitive. We do include them in our in our more complete model. Uh, just to control for it, is it because are we just capturing teacher effects that some teachers just particularly good that year? Um, we we try to control. You know, we have controls for that. As you see, they're not terribly sensitive for that. Um, that's the main spiel about data. So, okay. So the, the, the model we use here is, um, as I said, it's a panel data model here. Our dependent variable is an, a stand, oh, I didn't mention this. Well, I couldn't fit it on that line. It'd go off over there. Uh, is, it's, it's standardized. Um, my co-author would know better about the exact, is it standardized each year, each grade, year by year. I don't remember off the top of my head. Um, but it is standardized. Uh, I think it's but you'll see it's not standardized just for this sample. We're taking it as our input, so it won't actually be mean zero standard error of one, although you'll see it's pretty close. Okay. Um, we have some student characteristics. We don't have a huge amount in our model. The main ones are, if, again, a, a, a dichotomous variable for whether or not you're receiving a subsidized or free school lunch, because we don't have information about what exactly you're family income is, but if it's below a certain threshold, you do get uh, a hot lunch provided at school, uh, either at a reduced rate or free. And so that's sort of our proxy, and that does vary some year to year, not a lot. And then again, we have the student level mobility variable that we also include. So uh, other than that, things like race, ethnicity, and gender aren't really supposed to change over time, so we don't include them in there. Um, as I mentioned, at the teacher level, we do have teacher information, so things like do you have a new teacher or not, uh, do you have a male versus female, and then teacher ethnicity. We don't have a huge amount of controls there, uh, although not surprisingly, having a new teacher is more challenging uh, for the students than not. And then again, the, the idea here, these are the averages, that's what that bar is, of the peers, and again, the idea is you're not included in this. Uh, the student, you know, student I, it's almost like it should be like a not I, but I'm, I'm PowerPoint and Word challenged, so I, that's not in there. But that's where the idea is we have a set of peer characteristics. So everyone in your group, not counting you, and again, I'll talk in a slide or two, a couple different definitions of peer is the idea. Um, 
we have controls there. We do also control for, uh, that's not a, uh, for your test score in the previous year, even though this is a student fixed effects model. This seems to be the preferred method that uh, researchers studying education seem to be using, or at least economists, to try and account, even though obviously this, this variable is not perfect. And uh, again, I show the sensitivity, the results aren't. Well, there's some, they do vary somewhat, but we do run model. If you're uncomfortable with this, we do have models that don't include that in there. But the idea is to account for your, because it could be that just you had a, you know, a bad draw the year before, the fire alarm went off during your exam. Not that that ever happens to anybody anywhere. Uh, that's what. But if you want to know the long run effects of your variables of interest, like the five, right? Having it in there versus not. Well, no, just when you, when you work at a logarithm multiplier, the coefficient divided by the one minus pi. Oh, yes. And yes. As it is, pi is going to be five top order one over two. Yes, and we don't, that, that's why we don't, we don't even, yeah, it is good. And you can show small fees as well. Well, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh, I, yeah, the usual, yes, okay, yes, I, I know the, I know what you're talking about. Yes, and that's why we, you know, it's sort of a trade-off. Including it has that problem, but excluding it has other problems. So, um, so we've, yes. Now with a short T, including that, it's a good point. Funny the literature doesn't tend to talk about that problem, but yes, I'm, I do know, I, I'm aware of its existence. So. Yes, that, no, it's, yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't put the two together until now. Uh, yep. Yeah, and this is obviously a short T. So, yes, so just a reminder again, so the idea is you have this student fixed effect here, so I being students, J being however we measure, J is sort of P, how we measure peers one way or the other generally, although teacher stuff doesn't quite work out that way. Uh, we have school fixed effects in there, and then we have grade by year fixed effects as well, and then obviously uh, the leftover, the unexplained portion there being epsilon. The residual. Okay. So as I hinted um, uh, before, we, we've tried a couple different approaches. One, as I said, is looking at people in the classroom, which we like because those are the people, if you're worried about your math tests, your mathematics test score, the people that are in your class, I'm going to assume people actually come to class, uh, unlike, you know, other settings <laughs> uh, where they don't always. Uh, so in middle school, attendance is fairly high. Uh, so the idea is that if you're in, the people in the classroom are going to matter perhaps for that test, okay? The people that are sitting next to you, this is an end of grade test, they've been sitting next to you uh, for, you know, nine months. How did that work out? Uh, the problem, as I said, is that there's, there's concern that people are not randomly assigned to classrooms in North Carolina or anywhere. Uh, and so if that's the case, then you may be exacerbating this problem. So. And what a lot of people in the literature do instead, because they are also concerned about this potential non-random sorting of students into classrooms, is to send, instead just focus on everybody in sixth grade at that school. Because you know, your classes fluctuate a bit in this, I, I don't know, I think that's the change right in Ireland between primary and secondary. In secondary school, you tend to have one teacher for one subject and you rotate. In primary school, at least in the one observation I have in my own house, uh, you have the same teacher for all subjects, okay? So here, this is like the secondary school 
uh, approach here. They, almost everybody will have a different teacher for math, for reading, for science, for social studies, that sort of thing. Okay, so you may actually have some interaction with these other people in your grade, not just in your math classroom right then and there. So it may be useful. And also, again, as I tried to argue earlier, you're less concerned about this assignment of students into classrooms if you're just not taking advantage of that. So we tend to focus on the second one and also do to just make it a little bit easier to compare with the rest of the literature because this is the preferred approach that others have used in this, in this uh, literature. Um, another thing that uh, a couple of papers have used, although we're not as comfortable with it, is they tend to define your, in, to further abstract from potential concerns about sorting, they'll actually take your grade mates from, or classmates, from like three or four years ago and look at those peers. The idea being that that can't have this endogenous effect now. Now, I, one, we didn't find that terribly compelling. Uh, two, the papers that do this then show in an appendix table that the results are practically identical, whether you do that model or, the, or use the current model. Um, but we have, because a couple papers have done this, we've estimated this model as well. The results look pretty similar to whether you use current classmates. Um, so I, you, I probably, you may argue I already have too many results that I'll put up in the next 20 minutes, and so um, you will be spared from that. Yes, Dave. The students who aren't, yeah. Ah, good point. It's a percentage. It's a relative. Wait. It's a percentage. Let me just stick with that part. So it's the percentage of people in the class. So it goes from zero to one. So there could be a class size effect? Yes, yes. We do control for class size um, with that potential. And Brendan has a full list of these guys in the facility. Yeah. Yeah. Some do. There is some movement of, of students out as well. And that is actually a limitation is that if they move then into private schools, I should point out this is only public schools. We don't have the fee paying students in there, although in North Carolina it's not a huge percentage of the student population that attends private school. It's a bit higher in places like California. But yes, there has been some student flight uh, just as there was in the 60s and 70s with school integration in the U.S. when suddenly you had non-whites in your school. Uh, now these people are non-white often and they don't speak English, so it's a double whammy. And um, yes, that is a concern. Um, yeah, that's why, I mean, but if it's not random and it's at the school level, we have the school fixed effects. So if there are certain schools that just people are more likely to leave because they're worried about that, that's the hope of, that. that's why we have the school fixed effect in there as well, to try and capture that. Um, we've also tried a model that I'll talk about at the end, time permitting, uh, looking at 
um, where you can include a control of the, the percentage of students at the school that aren't proficient in English. The idea being if for some reason your grade has a number that's off from the school as a whole. But yes, that is a potential concern if this is non-random sorting across schools, which is your point here. That if indeed people are fleeing these schools and it's not random, that we can't capture that. That what we're attributing to being this idiosyncratic fluctuation across uh, schools and students and time, that's a potential problem. Well, we do have school fixed effects, so yeah. that, would, that would capture some of that. If it doesn't change over time, that'll be captured by that. Um, and boom. Yes. And, that, and, um, and as I said, this work, did I mention this works preliminary? Um, we're still grappling with ideas for how to, to address that fully. Again, we, we hope that these long run trends that you guys are, that some of which you're describing are captured by, by throwing in several different types of fixed effects. Um, we're still, we're aware and we have seen some evidence of, uh, there, there is some movement obviously of students among schools here and we're not, it's hard to tell, again, if we take Morgan's comment earlier, if we have the population, then, you know, it, it's the, we don't need to worry about the standard errors, right? I mean, it is the population so uh, of public school students. That's not the goal of this project, I have to admit. So, yeah, it's true. Actually, I only have like 20 minutes left, so I probably should. So, um, There's been some argument about looking not necessarily on the public versus private, but uh, there, there's uh, a bit of history in, history is not the right word, it's rather recent, but uh, there, there's some arguments about models for estimating teacher effects and the argument of same sort of concerns is that are these student assignments random in North Carolina and Jesse Rothstein has a fairly well-known paper in the QJE in I think 2010 or 9, last five-ish years, um, showing that 
that the sorting is not random, but then, uh, what's his name? Josh Kinsler, I think, then wrote a paper showing that the, that Rothstein didn't quite do it correctly and you can't reject the idea that the sorting is random or not. So that's why I say mixed evidence on the extent to which the sorting really is random or not. Although they're looking at primary schools. We're looking at middle schools largely because testing doesn't start until grade three. And if we want to include lagged peer test scores, that already drops grade three. People, when they study these things in, in the literature, tend to want to lag it two years, so it's lagged a year beyond your own individual lag test score, so those aren't being confounded at the same time period. Now we're suddenly fifth grade is the earliest grade that we can then use, so that's why we look at middle school, in part, why I should say. It's not the only reason why. Okay, oh, I already have results. Well, perfect. All right. Um, okay, so. Uh, we have separate tables here for math and, and for reading. And I'll translate for those of you beyond the first row. I guess that's everyone except Dorn. Um, here, so the first, this is, these are the peer, these are three peer measures, well, four peer measures that I show. The first column is meant to be sort of our basic model, no controls for student, uh, lagged student test scores, no teacher characteristics. And the, peer, and the peer effect is at the classroom level. And if you believe that model, then that's saying that raising the percent of students who don't speak English but holding other things constant uh, means that is associated with a decline in test scores of about 0.02%. So, uh, no wait, I get my notes here. Since I'm being recorded, I have an incentive not to mess that up. No, I think, yeah, in that model, that's literally what, what that's saying, is be 0.02% of the standard deviation, which in, if we believe that, would be very small. Okay. Um, then in the second column here, we're doing this exact same model, but we're assuming instead that you're looking at the grade level rather than the classroom level. Uh, by doing that, your standard errors get bigger because you've got more noise if we're going to, sorry Morgan, I'm just going to tell you now, I'm assuming, uh, I'm looking, I'm assuming this is, I can't treat this literally as just the population. Um, but, so, so you can't necessarily, well you can't reject zero obviously among other things. So it's 2%, not, not 0.02, other percent. 0.02%. Ah, uh, yes, thank you, sorry, two. Um, well, because again, the dependent variable here is the standardized test score. This goes from zero to one. Okay. So, so that's sort of the idea. If you jump over here, uh, then in the third column, what we do is we then add the student's pretest score, and that has a pretty big jump, negative jump on the coefficients here, right, going from two to eight. Uh, and then finally, then the next thing we add are the teacher characteristics, and that gives you a, a fairly large jump as well, suggesting that maybe these teachers, well, uh, I don't want to necessarily infer too much. As I said, these results are still pretty pretty uh, fresh out of stata here. It's got that, it's sort of like the new car smell, right? It's got the new regression smell from, from stata here. Um, but then uh, if you add, and then the last column, we just add the standard deviation of the peer test score as well, because there's some argument that it's not necessarily just average score, but how much, you know, how, how much, well, how 
bigger variance you have uh, in student test scores that may, that may affect the classroom. If you have a high achieving classroom but they have very uh, dispersed test scores, that could affect differently. So one thing, in full information, uh, is that we were a little bit surprised if originally that you actually find a negative effect on this peer mean test score in some ways. Because the literature tends to suggest that this is either very small and in essence zero, or it's slightly not as small and positive, right? I mean, what you're saying here is that if you have smart classmates, your scores go down if you take this liberally, okay? Um, we're wondering if there's some, if, if there could be a mean reversion argument because we have this individual level lag test score in there as well. That's really what's going on is you, you, know, you have your, your student fixed effect and you suddenly have a, a smarter year here in one year, but again, I don't know how compelling that is. Kevin's wrinkled face suggests it's not terribly compelling, uh, is the idea. So, but again, that's something that, that puzzles us. And so that's again why I say this is preliminary. Don't go out and suggest a bunch of policies regarding students learning English in North Carolina. I guess, Dorn, I'm looking at you because you're the most likely person to be in North Carolina um, anytime soon. But again, so. Huh? So. So what are you measuring this? End of year. So it's measured. I don't know. It's literally not the last day, but I think it's measured in either April or May. Uh, here. This is lagged two years ago. So it's your current peers. Ah. Um. No, it's not lagged, but it's, um, well, oh, I see. Um, we do have in there, what I mean by pretest, that's including last year's test score as a separate regressor. And these three columns have that. But maybe I'm not understanding your question. Well, I'm just wondering, is there a simultaneity issue with the left Ah. Ah, the reflection problem. Um, that's another reason why people argue for using, uh, yeah, the, the reflection problem. Uh, people using it at the grade level, uh, that doesn't necessarily alleviate that either. But some people argue that doing it that way is, helps. Um, that's why. Yes, I don't have, yes, the simultaneity issue or the reflection problem is a potential concern here. Dave. This would, your statement would be consistent with this finding, yes. The maybe, that, maybe that suggests that actually the schools themselves are doing stuff, or maybe they're better teachers at doing stuff. Quite possibly. It's also, again, the resource story that maybe these, these classrooms get more resources. Um, it could also be that, you know, I don't, I don't have perfect measures here. So. Yes. Yeah, that's one interpretation. I didn't want to push it too hard, but it does, it is potentially, that, that is potentially the case. Uh, the pattern of results is not uh, that much, uh, is in some ways, the coefficient's not that much different. The interesting thing is once you switch to grade level, it really doesn't change much, teachers, not teachers. So for reading, it does seem to matter here, but for math, not so much. Okay, I mean, in fact, it, it drops a little bit as opposed to becoming 
magnitude, I should think, um, in this case. So it's kind of arbitrary how you define peers, whether it's class or grade or some peer. But it makes it really different. It does here. Yeah. Yes. Uh, right. Uh, as I said, the, the reasons the literature gives for this is that the, the concern is this, there could be sorting that's going on here, and because you've got these students sorted a certain way, it mitigates the effects. But if we don't, if we abstract from the sorting, then this is a concern, yeah. is the idea. I mean, maybe the non-random sorting is helping with respect to math scores. Um, but when you take that out and you don't account, you have a grade level, which doesn't hopefully be, suffer from a concern about that, then suddenly you get this big negative. You can decide what to the extent to big uh, um, effects here. So, but again, so so if you compare these these coefficients here to try and give you some, some sort of like effect size, this is again in, in S five. If you think that the the model that has the teachers and everything in it is our preferred model, then again, what you're finding is that a ten percent but it seems like we're, we're in a bit of disagreement on this interpretation, which um, but is the idea. So again, if you think about a 1% increase, that's about two students in these uh, schools. So if you have two students who are, uh, it's hard, the, the counterfactual in some ways doesn't make sense, right? It's basically two students, if you take two students out, and the next day you stick in their replacements, you take John and replace him with Juan, and you know, Carl with Carlos, and they're identical, except suddenly they can't speak English. <laughs> then, the, then your test scores go down a bit. Um, again, our interpretation of this, and this may be open to debate, is that in terms of economic significance, this is not a huge effect, right? Because again, a 10%, if, if I'm interpreting these correctly, and uh, I'm, I'm suffering from stage fright here, and worrying that maybe I'm not, um, that this isn't that large an effect probably, right? 10% change in, in the classroom. Because again, the mean, well the standard deviation of the percent left is about 5%, which is also, the, it's both the mean and the standard deviation basically. So if you think about going from you know 5% to 15% roughly speaking, uh, that would be a huge change in these schools, but yet wouldn't have a huge detrimental increase, uh, effect on their test scores. So that's, that's the way I interpret it. So although these results, I would argue, are, are still preliminary and we're still thinking through some of these issues, um, we did have a little bit of time to try and do um, some analysis. Because one thing I should point out is the literature elsewhere tended to find generally results pretty close to zero. Sort of, in fact, kind of like our column one results in some ways. Um, tended to suggest that, it, like in Europe, for example, the results from the UK and from the Netherlands suggested that Im increased immigration didn't really have an effect on test scores. Was, I mean, they, in the UK, they have perhaps the population, but they have a very large data set and have very small standard errors, uh, if you even pay attention to the standard errors. And they basically found they, they could reject any sizable effect there. So that's this paper in, in Economic Journal. And so we thought, okay, well, what if we try to make our data look like theirs? Is the reason we're getting this different result from them because the model is different? And the answer is unclear. I mean, it, it jumps around. Now, some you may want to be a little concerned about these results because, again, this is the year that they transit from uh, 
second from elementary to middle school. And again, I should point out that these papers look at the end of grades, so sort of thing. Um, but on the other hand, if you look at this one, then suddenly you get a, a positive effect here. So uh, needless to say, these results are all over the map. So we do find, so one, I don't conclude much from these other than uh, that it's not, we don't get the same, it's not that necessarily, it could be the model that is generating these different results. However, when we estimate their model, these effects are a lot larger in magnitude than what they find. So we still aren't able to replicate the literature on that front. Um, but again, I'm a little uncomfortable um, saying a whole lot more because again, they're, they're, they're kind of all over the map. So which was a bit discouraging in some ways. It's not quite the, the nice clean result that we like. Um, the result that might be slightly cleaner, although perhaps not, is looking at a couple of different specifications to, to add to that. One is this idea about, as I said, there are a couple of papers, the Guy et al., um, and there's a paper, very interesting paper, looking at uh, immigration from former Soviet republics to Israel and this huge influx of non-Hebrew uh, speakers there. Um, the idea is you control for the school level percent language mix, again, to try, hopefully, although it could relate to Paul's concern about over-controlling, the idea is that you, you have, then you're isolating sort of the idiosyncratic effect in the grade that these students are in relative to just fluctuations that are occurring in the school. You just had a lot of people move in that year, sort of thing. And if you do that, you can see for reading, in some ways it's kind of interesting that the students, the, this effect becomes larger in magnitude when, when you throw that additional control in, which is not something that, that, that seems doesn't seem obvious why, to me at least, why that would occur, why suddenly the math effect doubles because suddenly you've thrown in this control. But again, the point is throwing in this control doesn't make these results look like the previous literature. It doesn't go away when you plug in this additional control. Because an argument could be made that you have a measurement error issue in some of these other studies because you have this control in here, then what is the, you know, you don't have a lot of variation left over for a given grade, I think. Ah, so this is sort of the, you're saying you, you can interpret this as a resource effect because the fact that if it's just, if you, rel well, on the other hand, if it's you relative to the school, maybe you could allocate a little more to your classroom, yeah. in which case they're actually worse off. Yeah, so I think it, in some ways it's almost the other way, that the resources aren't helping, right? You could add some resources and it wouldn't, it might not work. Well, and that's what we're trying to get at this column over here is, again, with only 5% of the schools, uh, with students being limited English proficient, maybe what we're doing is we're comparing a lot of different things. We have a lot of schools that just don't have any, and so sticking them in, well, in theory, shouldn't do much because um, the school fixed effect. So what we did is we just isolated the, and I have grades written here, so what I mean by that is obviously if that observation for that student in that year had the percent left being greater than zero, we included them in the regression. Now we probably could refine that, and uh, is, if it's any school during the period. Anyway, you could you could do it different ways. Obviously, we've chosen one because we did this last week, and 
one is better than zero, I would argue. Um, and you can see the results do not appear to be driven by a bunch of schools that don't have any left students, right? The results are not that far off. They're a bit bigger for math. Um, and so if, if the argument is, oh, if you've never had students before, suddenly you have these students, you don't know what to do with them, that doesn't seem to be the driving our results either, right? Because if that's the case, then why is suddenly this effect more pronounced when you're, because the idea here is this is combining and moving from zero as well as moving from, say, one kid in the classroom to two. If we throw out the people at zero, then you actually get not that much different here, but a bit larger here. Sorry? Correct. So, what, what, I mean, what you can safely say you're throwing out is if you have a school that doesn't have any in it at all, then they, they won't be in there. Um, and again, since it's only 5% of the population, you will have some schools like that. Um, and the last thing we did was to look at this argument of where the students are. We thought, again, it would be interesting to note are there differences across areas. Um, you can see we get monstrous standard errors. And I have to talk with my co-author about this because I, I don't quite understand because the effect overall is 12%. Why is those, it doesn't, doesn't entirely make sense to me. Um, I don't know if like we just didn't bother with suburban kids or what. Um, I, have to, I have to figure that one out. But the point is between rural and urban students, they look, it doesn't appear to be much of a difference in, in reading scores. Um, the effect's quite noisy though, so we can't say much. Um, for math, though, it's very bizarre in the sense that rural schools seem to actually benefit, the students there seem to actually benefit from having, maybe it's, you know, exposure to culture or something. I don't have a good argument for this, whereas they have a strong negative effect for these urban schools. Um, the, the students, the school you're describing in Durham, they have enough problems identifying colors. You throw in, you know, rojo rather than red, and they're just toast. So... Can't, you can't learn it in two languages, so forget about it. Um, so that's the, the that's that's basically where we are, um, and I seem to be pretty much out of time. So, um, so again, the results. This might be maybe I should put robust in quotes because it's not necessarily as robust, but it's some of the specifications I should have used. It's robust to some alternative specifications, maybe is the, the truth in advertising. Um, I would argue these effects are fairly modest. Uh, in magnitude, but that, that may be the point of debate. Um, and again, one thing that's, that's interesting, although we need to do more work, is that we, we tend to find these negative effects here, whereas the literature looking at uh, immigration in Europe tends to find that immigration doesn't seem to be having much of an effect on students, whereas here having in North Carolina at middle schools, having kids that aren't proficient in English seems to have a modest negative impact on students' math and reading test scores.